Jesus from Nazareth claimed to be the prophesied Messiah. He also claimed to be God in actual human form. Those claims got him into so much trouble, the religious authorities had him murdered on a cross. He was buried, and then after three days, his disciples announced his resurrection from the dead. And that he had revealed himself to them in his post-resurrection form numerous times before his ascension into heaven. Easter is the celebration of that resurrection. And that resurrection claim is a non-negotiable, fundamental, essential to historic Christianity. Theologian Gerald Collins said, quote, In a profound sense, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. No, it is not Christianity at all. Christianity apart from the resurrection does not exist, cannot exist. According to ancient Jewish custom, a deceased person's corpse wasn't permitted to be moved by less than two people. That's the reason a secret disciple named Joseph from Arimathea, a man of some financial means, and a converted Pharisee named Nicodemus wanted Jesus' remains. Joseph had purchased a private tomb uh, in, a, in the garden, not far from the actual execution site. No one had ever been buried in that tomb. The tomb's entrance itself was short, forcing someone to bend down some in order to enter that tomb. Once inside the tomb, though, there was a sizable rectangular step-down area. Someone would enter the tomb, step down into this sunken rectangular area, and that would then enable them to stand erect once inside the center of this burial chamber itself. Joseph and Nicodemus performed a strategic burial procedure that included wrapping the corpse in grave cloths. Then it was laid out flat onto a couch-like configuration, sort of a ledge or a shelf that had been carved into the stone wall of the tomb. This is an example of that. This is that shelf that's been carved into the side of the tomb. The course would be laid out on that shelf configuration. If the word resurrection sounds unfamiliar, then imagine sitting in a funeral service. Imagine the deceased person in the casket, opening the casket lid from the inside, and then sitting up and climbing out of the casket. That would be a resurrection. Someone is dead one moment, and then alive the next moment. And in Jesus' case, dead, then alive, never to die another time. A black preacher from down south described Jesus' resurrection as he done got up, went, and gone. And that's exactly what happened. Christianity is literally contingent on the fact Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Notice 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, meaning that if there was no resurrection, if Jesus died and is still dead then our preaching is empty. And your faith, meaning our Christian faith, is also empty. Professor John Dominic Crossan from the infamous Jesus Seminar argued that Jesus' corpse was probably dug up and eaten by dogs. If that blasphemous assertion is correct, and if Jesus is still dead, and his remains have been disposed of, then according to verse 14, we just read, this sermon is just emptiness and meaningless. We are wasting our time even being here this morning, and Christianity is just a bad joke. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, meaning if there was no resurrection, if Jesus died and is still dead, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If there was no resurrection, then our Christian faith is futile, meaning it's useless and pointless, and there is no forgiveness from our sin. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then he's still dead, as all dead men are still dead. And that would prove he wasn't God, as he claimed to be. If he wasn't God, then he was only human. The problem is humans sin. And if he sinned, then he was unqualified to become the Savior and forgiver because then he would have the same sin problem we all have. If Jesus was human and wasn't God, then he is unable to save us. And since we are unable to save ourselves, there is no solution to our sin problem. 
So it's a simple matter, a simple elementary matter to discredit Christianity. All someone has to do is to factually refute the resurrection. Just factually refute the resurrection. Just do that. And there is no more Christianity. If we can just disprove the resurrection, then Christianity doesn't exist. Christianity's critics understand that. And so different alternate theories have been manufactured in an attempt to discredit the resurrection. Let's examine some of those more common ones. One is the no burial theory. The no burial theory. This argument contends there was no actual internment. Meaning Jesus was never buried. Jesus was never put into the tomb. Therefore, he, he would not have been in that tomb on Easter morning because he had never been in that tomb. He never had a private burial. Critics argue that instead Jesus' body was thrown onto a mass grave because ancient Roman custom was to have crucifixions buried together in a common pit. But that wasn't always the case. That did happen. Probably most often it happened, but not always. In 1968, archaeologists found the crucified remains of a Jewish man. We know his name, Yohanan ben Halgalga. He had been buried in a private tomb outside Jerusalem. A seven-inch nail was driven into his feet with small pieces of olive wood from the cross still attached to his skeletal remains. He had been crucified as a criminal, but he had not been buried in a common criminal's grave. He had his own personal burial accommodations. So there were historical exceptions to using mass graves to discard crucifixion victims. Besides, consider this. Why would the Romans have secured the tomb if there were no body buried inside that tomb to protect from being stolen? That's nonsensical. So, dis so to disprove the resurrection, all those religious authorities had to do was to just retrieve Jesus' body from that so-called criminal's mass grave, put it on exhibit to the public, and prove that Jesus was still dead. But that didn't happen. God arranged to have his son buried in a private entombment in order to substantiate his resurrection from the dead. Second is the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory. According to this argument, the women found the garden tomb empty because Jesus was actually buried in another different grave. In 1907, Harvard Divinity School professor Kersop Lake suggested the Roman authorities had moved the body of Jesus from the crucifixion site to an undisclosed location so that the disciples misidentified the grave. This argument teaches that Jesus was buried in a personal tomb, not in a mass grave, a personal tomb, but no one knew the location of that tomb other than certain Authorities. So the graveside mentioned in the gospel accounts was just another unused grave. And that's the reason on Sunday morning it was empty, not because of the resurrection. But consider the logical ramifications of this wrong tomb argument. If Jesus had been buried in another undisclosed grave, then Mary Magdalene and the other women went to the wrong tomb. Peter and John went to the wrong tomb. The Jewish Sanhedrin went to the wrong tomb. The Roman guard was stationed at the wrong tomb, and the angel that announced the resurrection sat outside the wrong tomb. I don't think so. Number three is the hallucination theory. Hallucination theory. Jesus made 11 post-resurrection public appearances, but this theory suggests that those people that claimed to have seen Jesus after his resurrection, didn't actually see him, but were just hallucinating. Hallucination means a false perception. Hallucination is a mistaken notion. It means to see things that seem real. Those things, though, aren't actually real. According to this idea, those supposed witnesses to the resurrection were delusional into thinking that they had seen a resurrected Jesus. But it was just an hallucination. But that's a problem. Because according to the psychiatric profession, only a small, minute percentage of the population actually ever hallucinate. 
And those that do hallucinate suffer from severe psychological abnormalities. Since hallucinations are connected to someone's subconscious, and since hallucinations are incited from pure inner psychological cause and not from external stimulus, and since the hallucinations are private and personal phenomena and are extremely individualized, it would be impossible for two different people to have the same identical hallucination at the same exact time. Consider this. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6 states that 500 people, 500 people together at the same time were permitted to see Jesus in his post-resurrection form. The probability of 500 different people experiencing the same identical hallucination at the same exact time and at the same exact location is statistically not improbable, impossible. It is possible someone there in that group might have hallucinated, but it is not possible that individual could then have induced his hallucination onto 499 other people. Because a hallucination exists only in a subjective, personal sense. Only one person can see the same hallucination at a time. It isn't a group thing. And so it didn't happen. Number four is the swoon theory. The swoon theory, also called the resuscitation theory. The 18th century rationalists created this argument. One of them was founding father Thomas Jefferson. Don't misunderstand this. This is not to discount and discredit uh, Mr. Jefferson's incredible contributions to our nation's beginning. In addition to the Declaration of Independence, he was a primary author of that document. Um, we owe much of our religious freedom to Thomas Jefferson's efforts. President Jefferson was a theist. He did believe in the existence of God, but he was also a rationalist. He didn't accept the miraculous elements of Scripture, so he edited his own uh, translation of the New Testament. That edition of the New Testament contained only the moral teachings of Jesus and removed all references to the supernatural. The gospel accounts, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those gospel accounts in Jefferson's edition contained no miracles, including the miraculous resurrection. Because rationalists said, if something wasn't rational, if something wasn't reasonable, then it didn't exist. Today, rationalists are called secular humanists, and our public universities are full of them. The resurrection did not fit the rationalist logic. It wasn't reasonable, it wasn't rational that Jesus would be resurrected from the dead because resurrections just don't happen, and we all know that. So 19th century German rationalists popularized, popularized this swoon theory. This swoon theory states Jesus did not actually die from the crucifixion, but that he swooned. Swooned meaning that he fainted or he passed out. Jesus, according to them, fell into a coma caused from the trauma and shock of the crucifixion and the enormous loss of blood. That process caused his pulse to slow down to such a slow rate that from a casual examination, it seemed that he had died, but he hadn't actually died. According to this theory, Joseph and Nicodemus assumed that Jesus was dead. He seemed dead to them. But there had been no historical record of someone surviving a full Roman crucifixion, so it never occurred to them that he might be alive. So according to this theory, those men accidentally buried Jesus alive because he was only unconscious, not deceased. But then after the grave had been closed, it was just a matter of time, probably minutes, until the cool, damp air of the tomb resuscitated Jesus. Resuscitate means to revive someone from unconsciousness. So after a period of just minutes uh, in the tomb, Jesus regained consciousness. But again, he'd never been dead, just swooned. But one commentator described what would have occurred if this resuscitation theory were true. He said this, Jesus would have had to survive the massive loss of blood from the scourging, the nail wounds, and the spear thrust into his side. He would also have to have had survived being wrapped 
tightly in the linen cloths that were filled with a hundred pounds of spices. Besides all of that, in his extremely weakened condition, he would have had to endure more than 40 hours without food or drink, managed to unwrap himself of the mummy-like grave clothes, single-handedly push the stone away from the inside of the tomb, walk out unchallenged by the guards, and then convince his followers that he had actually been dead and then miraculously raised. Doesn't that sound reasonable? Some of these theories require some serious imagination. Number five is the relocated body theory. Relocated body theory. This is a popular hypothesis found on the internet. This argument contends that Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb. But he was buried there only temporarily. He was buried there on Friday night. But before Sunday morning... He had been reburied, relocated to another grave. That means that the original tomb Joseph of Arimathea had purchased was empty on Sunday morning, not because of the resurrection though, but because Jesus' body had been moved and reburied in another grave. Now we do understand from historical sources, reburial did sometimes happen in ancient Palestine, but that wasn't how it happened, if it did happen. The traditional Jewish reburial procedure was to bury someone in a grave or tomb for 12 months. 12 months. And then after those 12 months, after the flesh had completely deteriorated, the remaining bones, meaning the skeletal remains, would be removed from that grave and then placed into a stone box called an ossuary. An ossuary. Ossuaries contain the skeletal remains of someone that had earlier been buried. But no one reburied a deceased person after just one night in a tomb. And the reason is, it was just the bones that were reburied, just the skeletal remains that were reburied and relocated, not the entire corpse. It's a bogus theory. Number six is the kidnap theory or theft theory. Kidnap theory or theft, this is the oldest alternative theory to the resurrection. This is the only theory that is mentioned in scripture. The argument is that Jesus' disciples stole his body to deceive people into thinking he had been resurrected, and he actually hadn't. This idea is mentioned in Matthew 28, starting at verse 11. Now while they, these are the women that had just seen Jesus in his resurrected state, while they were going, behold, some of the guard, this is the Roman guard, came into the city, into Jerusalem and reported to the chief priest, these religious authorities of Judaism, all the things that had happened. The Roman soldiers that had been stationed to guard the tomb returned to Jerusalem after the resurrection because these men understood there was a serious, serious problem. The grave had been opened, the tomb, the stone in front of the tomb had been moved, and the grave was now empty, and the body was now missing, and this was a problem. Verse 12, when they, those chief priests, had assembled with the elders and consulted together, notice they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. Verse 13, saying, tell them, tell the public, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we were sleeping. The religious authorities discussed what to do about the missing body and decided on a solution. Now please notice, no one on that religious council disputed the resurrection. No one said, no, that didn't happen, couldn't have happened. It's impossible. No one disputed the resurrection because the resurrection was indisputable. The grave was empty. The body was missing. Their only concern was how to prevent other people from hearing about the resurrection so that it didn't start a grassroots movement to accept this resurrected Jesus as the promised Messiah. So the question being deliberated was, how do we discredit the resurrection so people don't get caught up in this? And their solution was to bribe the soldiers into perpetuating a lie. And the lie was that these soldiers fell asleep at guard and then the disciples took advantage of that situation to force open the grave and steal the body of Jesus. That happened so the disciples could then tell people Jesus was alive because the tomb was empty. His body was not there. But the soldiers would rebut that and argue, no, no, no. Uh, 
it, 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 it wasn't empty because Jesus was alive. It was empty because those disciples stole the body as we were sleeping and put it where it couldn't be found. There was no resurrection. Notice these soldiers were bribed to do this, to perpetuate this lie. And verse 12 states these men were offered a sizable sum of money to perpetuate that falsehood. Now don't miss this. The religious authorities knew these soldiers wouldn't admit under normal conditions, wouldn't admit to falling asleep on guard unless the Sanhedrin, remember the Jewish Sanhedrin was Israel's highest ruling governing body, similar to our Supreme Court, unless the Sanhedrin could protect them from the Roman government because those soldiers understood that falling asleep on guard constituted a death sentence. And that's the reason verse 14 reads, and if this comes to the governor's ears, Meaning if Governor Pontius Pilate hears about this rumor, we will appease him and make you secure. Verse 15, so they, these soldiers, took the money, meaning these men accepted the bribe, and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. This day, meaning not our day, this day meaning the day, the time Matthew recorded this text. The soldiers listened to the lie the authorities had fabricated. Those men accepted the bribe monies and then started perpetuating this lie to the extent it became the common explanation for the missing corpse. The lie was the disciples stole the body. The lie was the disciples stole the body of Jesus. That's the reason for the empty tomb. Matthew said that fraudulent rumor was believed until his day and he wrote this account at about 63 AD meaning more than three decades after the resurrection the famous church father Justin Martyr mentioned that this lie was common still common as late as the second century and this craziness is still around but the ironic part is that this fraudulent account designed to discredit the resurrection turned out to actually reinforce the resurrection. The lie those soldiers told forced people to re-examine the resurrection and a logical, biblical, and historical examination of the resurrection demonstrates that the corpse wasn't stolen. And there are four reasons it wasn't stolen. And those four reasons reinforce Jesus' resurrection. John MacArthur said the preacher is similar to an attorney in a courtroom. An attorney standing before the court is building his case and he is arguing for a verdict from the jury. I'm not smart enough to be an actual attorney. I'm certain I could never get through law school and there's no hope in heaven I could ever pass the bar exam. But in the remaining minutes of this message I will attempt to act as an attorney and I will build attempt to build a factual case for the resurrection. And I hope it convinces you, as the jurors, to conclude that Jesus' resurrection did happen as per Scripture states that it did. Reason one, the body wasn't stolen, is the problem of the Roman guard. The problem of the Roman guard. Jesus presented a religious problem to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And Jesus presented a political problem to the Roman government. So it was advantageous that both groups make sure Jesus was no longer a problem to them. Both wanted this Jesus stuff stopped. So a guard was stationed at the tomb to secure the grave from potential grave robbers. That Roman guard might have been the greatest offensive and defensive human fighting machine ever conceived. That is until modern times and modern weapons. That unit consisted of men that were predecessors to the modern Army Special Forces and the Navy SEALs. Sixteen soldiers were assigned to stand guard at the gravesite, and this was the arrangement. Four of those soldiers would stand in front of the entrance to the tomb, meaning there were four soldiers stationed at the immediate front entrance of the tomb. The remaining 12 soldiers were positioned on the ground in a small semicircle in front of them. The soldiers on the ground could sit there, could eat or talk or could sleep. And then each four hours, another four soldiers would get up from the ground and replace the four soldiers that had been standing guarding at the tomb. So the four that had been standing guard would then be relieved and could then relax 
and sit and talk and eat or fall asleep on the ground. That was the procedure those 16 soldiers used rotating around the clock, nonstop guarding the tomb. But there's a problem, a big problem, because an attempt to approach that tomb would have caused an immediate announcement from those four soldiers standing guard at the grave. That announcement would have alerted the 12 soldiers, even awakened those that were asleep on the ground, would have awakened them, alerted them, and then in an instant there would have been 16 wide awake Roman soldiers assuming a combat stance between those intruders and the grave. Question, do you know what 16 elite Roman soldiers could do? Anything they wanted to. That confrontation, if the disciples had attempted that, would have been over before it started. No one in his right mind would have believed the disciples had been able to manhandle and overpower the Roman guard and then force open the grave and steal Jesus' body. The religious authorities understood. That explanation had to be more believable and more feasible than that, so they manufactured this lie. The concocted lie was that all 16 soldiers fell asleep. All of them. Even the four soldiers positioned at the entrance of the tomb dozed off and collapsed to the ground asleep. The disciples then tiptoed in and over and around those soldiers that were sound asleep and then forced entry into the grave and stole the body. There's one small problem. Roman soldiers did not did not fall asleep standing guard. That's because the punishment inflicted on a soldier that fell asleep on guard was death. Byzantine Roman Emperor Justinian in his digest lists 18 capital offenses a Roman guard unit could commit, meaning 18 offenses that these Roman guards could commit that each would result in the death penalty. And that list included leaving one's position unguarded and falling asleep. If a soldier was caught nodding and off and sleeping, he would be jerked from his position, beaten by the captain of the guard, stripped naked, and burned to death in a fire started with his own clothes. No soldier in his right mind would ever admit to falling asleep on guard because that was an immediate death sentence. That's the reason for verse 14. These religious authorities understood that these soldiers were shaking in their boots because a body was missing, a body that they were supposed to be protecting from theft. And the government, Roman government, would hold them responsible. If this lie got out to the governor, and it would have, that those men had admitted to being asleep, then he would have had them all executed. So the Jewish authorities said, gentlemen, listen, don't sweat this. If Governor Pilate hears about this, we'll tell him the truth, that you didn't actually fall asleep on guard, but that we just made this up to be a piece of propaganda used to explain the empty tomb. Trust us, we can convince the governor you weren't actually asleep. No one is going to get in trouble here. There had to be that guarantee from the Sanhedrin to protect them, or else those men would not have admitted to falling asleep. But there's another problem people seem to miss. Let's assume, for the purpose of argumentation, let's assume this soldier's falling asleep excuse was true. It wasn't. Let's pretend it was. If the entire Roman guard did fall asleep, then how would those men have known it was the disciples that stole the body if all 16 eyewitnesses to that potential crime were sound asleep? Would the disciples have left a note, hey, it was us? How would those men, asleeping, have known who stole the body? Nowhere in the historical record is a single disciple suspected of or arrested on a kidnap charge. No one was ever tried and persecuted for that crime because the body wasn't stolen. Reason two is the problem of the Roman seal. The Roman seal. Matthew 27, verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure. Notice, sealing the stone and setting the guard. In addition to the guard being assigned to the tomb, Pilate also commanded that the stone be sealed. What did that mean? 
To seal the stone net, a cord, a thick piece of rope, was stretched across that stone that closed up the tomb's interest. A cord was stretched across that stone, and attached to that stone at each end of that cord were small packs of clay. Before the clay hardened, a soldier stamped the clay with Pilate's official signet, so that the hardened clay would bear the distinct imprint from the governor's insignia. This is an example of a seal made from clay and then hardened. Notice the imprint inside the seal. And it would have been Pilate's insignia that was placed on these seals. That meant no one had a legal right to break open that seal and enter that tomb unless that person had more legal authority than Pontius Pilate because it was Pilate's seal. It was his insignia and seal. The only person that had more positional authority than Pilate was Emperor Caesar. Someone would have to have authority that equaled or succeeded Caesar's in order to legally break open that seal and enter the tomb. And none of those disciples met that criteria. The consequences of someone unqualified breaking that seal illegally was extremely severe. The FBI and CIA of the Roman government would be called into action to find that person and or persons that had done that. After the guilty parties had been arrested, each of them would be executed through being crucified upside down. That was the punishment assigned to someone illegally breaking the governor's seal. Question, would the disciples have had enough courage to do that? Are you serious? No. Matthew 26, verse 56 states that after the multitude arrested Jesus in the garden at night, his disciples were terrified and left him. The disciples at that juncture were cowards. The disciples didn't become bold, didn't become courageous, and didn't die as martyrs until after each of them had been convinced Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. It was not probable or even possible those men had enough courage to break the seal, force open the tomb, and steal the corpse. Reason three is the problem of the gravestone. The problem of the gravestone. Joseph pushed a large stone against the entrance to the tomb so as to secure it. Mark 16 verse 4 states, They saw that the stone had been rolled away, this is after the resurrection, for it was very large. Question, and just how large was that very large stone? Two engineering professors from Georgia Tech University went to Israel to examine Jesus' traditional grave site. It's entirely possible um, that that grave is not the original tomb. For those who have been there as tourists, um, tourists are told this might not be the actual tomb Jesus was buried in. But that doesn't matter. It still would have been similar in size to that original site. Those professors calculated the size of the stone necessary to completely cover the entrance to this tomb. It would have weighed, according to them, a minimum of one and a half to two tons or even more. That's a large stone. Skeptics argue, okay, if it's that large, how could Joseph move that stone that size into position? It would be impossible for one man to move such a large object unless Nicodemus helped him. And even then, it was extremely doubtful that even two men could move that large a stone. Let me explain how it happened. In front of the entrance to the tomb, immediately in front of it, there was a large groove or trench dug into the ground. That groove or trench ran parallel to and in front of the entrance to this tomb. It was dug at an angle so that it ran downhill. The stone had initially been set into position at the top of this groove in the ground. And there was a piece of wood that wedged it into place. And notice on the screen, you see the stone and you see the piece of wood wedged there. What you cannot see from this perspective is that uh, the groove or trench the stone is in actually slopes downhill in front of the tomb. Once all the burial preparations had been made and it was time to close up the tomb, 
Joseph pulled out that wooden wedge, gave that stone a shove, and gravity did the rest. Because that heavy, almost disc-shaped rock, that rock rolled down the groove. That was the start of rock and roll, right there. That's how it happened. (laughs) That rock rolled down that groove, and the stone stopped at the end of the groove, right in front of the entrance to the tomb. And that sealed off access to the grave. So to re-enter the grave, if the disciples had wanted to steal the body, to re-enter the grave, that large stone would have to have been moved against gravity back up that groove or trench in the ground. And that would have required a large number of men to even start momentum on that stone and begin movement up the groove or trench. John 20 verse 1 supplies more evidence that the disciples didn't move that stone. Verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Notice the statement. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The statement is made that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, meaning the stone had not just been rolled up that groove to its original position and the wedge reinserted, but the stone had actually been moved away from the entrance to the tomb. The word translated as taken, as in taken away, in the original Greek language is the word aero, spelled A-I-R-O, pronounced aero. And this word aero meant to pick something up and then carry it away. To pick it up and move it to another location. So the stone in front of the entrance to the tomb had not just been pushed back some at the resurrection so Jesus could squeeze through that opening and get out. But that stone had literally been picked up and moved to another location away from the tomb. And that exposed the entire entrance to the tomb. That's more evidence the disciples didn't steal the body. Because even if the disciples wanted to force open the grave, they would not have started a rock-moving contest to see how far the stone could be moved from the tomb before the soldiers awoke. No, that wouldn't have happened. The appropriate technique in that situation would be to move the stone just enough for them to squeeze into the tomb and just enough to squeeze the corpse out of the tomb. And that's all. No grave robbers would pick up the stone and move it completely away from the grave. That's nonsense. And number four is the problem of the grave clothes. The problem of the grave clothes. According to John 19 and verse 40, The body of Jesus was wrapped around and around from the neck down to the toes with long strips of linen cloth. Not unlike that used in the ancient Egyptian mummification process. John 20 verse 6, Then Simon Peter came following him, meaning John, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now notice, He saw linen cloths, plural. These strips of cloth had been removed from Jesus that had earlier been wound around and around his body. He saw them lying there. Verse 7, And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Peter and John went into the tomb after the resurrection and not knowing what to expect. Inside... These men found Jesus' grave clothes were still in their original position on the stone couch or ledge, probably in the form of his body, and similar to a cocoon, slightly caved in and completely empty. Now notice that the linen handkerchief, which was the cloth that went around Jesus' head, was not with the other cloths. But it was wrapped together, folded, and then neatly put into another place apart from the rest of the grave clothes. That one small detail proves that the controversial Shroud of Turin is not the burial cloth Jesus was buried in. Couldn't have been. 
The Shroud of Turin consists of one large piece of cloth, more than three and a half feet wide, almost 14 and a half feet long. Jesus wasn't buried in one piece of cloth. Remember we just said, according to John 19 verse 40, multiple strips of linen were wound around him and around him and around him, similar to a mummy, and then a separate cloth was put over his head. He wasn't buried in a singular piece of cloth. The Shroud of Turin doesn't fit that narrative. It's possible the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth for someone else who had been crucified, but it wasn't the cloth that Jesus was buried in. Question. If the disciples had managed to get inside this tomb, it's, it's hard to believe that could have happened, but if it did, would they have taken the time once inside the tomb to literally unwrap all of the grave cloths from around Jesus? That would have taken some time. Would those men have taken the time to remove the handkerchief that had been placed around his head, fold it up neatly, and then put it in another place? Reassemble his other grave clothes to resemble their original position, and then bring out a completely naked corpse from the tomb? No, a grave robber's attitude was, let's just grab the goods and go. If the disciples had been able to penetrate the tomb, then they would have just grabbed the body and rushed out with it. The grave cloth would not have been unwrapped. And then the handkerchief would not have been taken off and refolded into a neat arrangement. This kidnap theory is so ridiculous that Matthew mentions it, but then doesn't bother to refute it. Understand something. The tomb of Jesus Christ is vacant. Not because of a kidnap theory or some other bogus explanation. It is empty because Jesus Christ left it empty. After examining all the evidence from a judicial perspective, Lord Darling, Darling, former justice to the Queen of England, concluded that, quote, there exists such overwhelming evidence, both positive and negative evidence, both factual and circumstantial evidence, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. And I'm hopeful that this morning, that is your verdict. Jesus is the only person to die and then cheat on death. His resurrection is miraculous evidence to demonstrate He was who He said He was. And He did what He said He did. And that means we each have a decision to make. What are we going to do with Jesus Christ? What are we going to do with Jesus Christ? Ignore Him, as so often happens. Reject Him or accept Him. Leonard Cohen was a Canadian songwriter, singer, poet, and novelist. In 1984, he created his most famous song called Hallelujah. Most of us have heard that. It wasn't that popular at first, but it is now. The original lyrics are strange and full of ambiguities. No one seems to know the song's exact meaning. And Mr. Cohen is deceased, and so he can't add further comment to that. But that song has been covered using different lyrics hundreds of times because the musical arrangement is so beautiful. We're about to see and hear the latest edition of that song as it applies to the resurrection. This is from Cassandra Starr and her older sister Callahan. Give us just a moment to, lighten the, to darken the room. We're going to darken while the lights are going out. And I want us to watch this. A crown of thorns placed on his head. He knew that he would soon be dead. He said, did you forget me, Father, did you? Hallelujah. 
hung his head and prepared to die. Then lifted his face up to the sky. Said, I am coming home now, Father, to you. A reed which held his final sip was gently lifted to his lips. He drank his last and gave his soul to glory. Would you bow your heads with me? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Hallelujah, our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. Yes, He died, and He died for our sins. He was punished so we wouldn't have to be. He was buried, but He was resurrected from the dead. So the question is, what have you done with Jesus. Have you ignored him, neglected him, rejected him, or accepted him? If you're here this morning and you can say from your heart without any hesitation that there was a time, a moment in time space history, there was a place, there was a time, there was an experience where you said yes to Jesus. You understood your sinfulness, your inability to save yourself. You realized He was the only Savior, and you asked Him into your life. 
you repented from sin and you said, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior, my forgiver. Please be my Lord and my leader. You have experienced Jesus Christ. You have a relationship to him. You are essentially a Christian and you know it. And you know that if you were to die today, you're as sure of heaven as if you were already there. With every head bowed, I don't want anyone looking. But if that's your story, if that's your testimony, if that is true about you, and remember, God is looking. So be honest with yourself and with Him. If that's you, you know you have Jesus. Would you raise your hand where I can see it? Raise your hand all over the room. Thank you so much. Thank you. So many raised their hands, but some could not. And those who could not, I am so grateful that you were being honest with me. Uh, you didn't want to misrepresent what was happening in your life. But I care about you. I may never see you again on this earth. You may never visit another service. But more than anything, I want to know that we will be in heaven together forever. And there's only one way, and that's through Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross, his burial and resurrection. If you're here this morning, you couldn't raise your hand a moment ago, but you have a desire to know more. You have an interest in Jesus. You have an interest in committing your life to Him as the rest of us have. If it's there, and maybe you have questions, and that's great, but if that desire is in your heart, and you would ultimately like to have Jesus, I'd like to know about it. I'd like to know what's happening in your heart. If that's you, could you raise your hand up real high where I can see it? I wouldn't mention your name. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. A number of people raised their hands for a service. It was a larger service. Thank you for raising your hand. If you raised your hand, or if you didn't but should have, please see me after the service and say, Pastor, can we set up a time? Can we set up an appointment? I want to know Jesus. I would be thrilled to share with you how you can have Jesus in your life, just as the rest of us do. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time, the specialness of this morning, Easter morning, or resurrection morning, the morning that your son rose from the dead, never to die again. And he is alive right now, tangibly in the third heaven, but spiritually and invisibly he's in this room, and he is in the hearts of everyone who has accepted him. And my heart goes out today for those who haven't made that decision as of yet. Maybe they're close. Or maybe they're just beginning that search. It doesn't matter. Father, my desire is for them to ultimately receive Christ. I pray that they would. I pray that they would have enough courage to say to me, Pastor, I want to meet with you. Can we get together? Nothing is more important than that. I pray that will happen. Father, thank you again for all you have done for us through the provision of your Son, Jesus Christ, as the solution to our sin problem. Where would we be without him? we would be hopeless and we would be as Paul said of all men most miserable so I thank you for the gift of your son and the salvation he brings and I thank you in Jesus name Amen